This is Discord and Rhyme. 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 Y'all just got jammed. <laughs> <laughs> Smithers Jones. Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. We're on both Twitter and Instagram at Discord Pod, and you can find show notes and our full episode archive at discordpod.com. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and really anyone who will have us, honestly. And you can also subscribe by email at discordpod.com slash contact. I'm Rich Bennell, and I'm joined by the snotty power trio of Ben Marlin, John McFerrin, and Dan Watkins. First, I'd like to start by thanking our newest patron, Barry. Thanks, Barry. And if any other listeners want to support us with a monthly donation, just visit patreon.com slash discordpod. We thank all patrons up front in the next episode we record, so there's usually about a month delay, but your name will be there. Anyway, so this is kind of an abrupt tonal shift, but I wanted to make sure this was at the top of the episode. So we've mentioned a few times on here that we all started obsessing over music writing for a cluster of amateur music review sites in the late 90s. Um, In particular, Phil Maddox and I wrote for a now defunct site called Music Junkies Anonymous. Uh, We received the sad news earlier this week that one of the site's co-founders, Casey Brennan, passed away very suddenly. And we've all been hit pretty hard by this news. Casey had a really infectious enthusiasm for music that rubbed off on all of us, and we're all really going to miss him. So, Casey... This episode and the rest of the podcast goes out to you. That said, let's introduce this week's album. So our host is Ben, who I still haven't quite forgiven for his grievous slander against the B-52s, but I guess I'm going to let him host anyway. Uh, What do you have for us, Ben? (laughs) That's that's very magnanimous of you, Rich. Thank you. I Um, try. (laughs) Today we're discussing the 1979 album Setting Suns, and that's spelled S-O-N-S by British band The Jam. Is that spelled J-A-M-M, like Jeremy Jam from Parks and Rec? Unfortunately, no. Damn. You just got jammed, Rich. (laughs) (laughs) Again. Well, so why did you choose this album, Ben? Setting Suns is the band's fourth album, and while they retain some of the punk energy from their debut two years earlier, it's an eclectic album. It features pop songs, rock songs, one song taken at a dreamy pace, and one Motown cover, admittedly tacked on at the end because they had space to fill. Setting Suns was intended to be a concept album, a look at three boyhood friends who went through a war together, but who've since grown apart and who've since faced the crushing weight of adulthood. Actually, that last part was my own addition. Paul Weller was only 21 when he wrote these songs and had no clue of the anvil that was eventually going to fall on him. However, like most concept albums, uh, the concept in Setting Suns is sort of there and sort of not. Only a few songs hint at it. But the album definitely does not suffer for it. Setting Suns is my favorite jam album. It's probably not their most consistent album, but I don't care if a few of the songs are less than the others. The best songs on here have stuck with me for years, and they never stop being interesting or resonant. Okay, Ben, so how did you first get jammed? And that's the last time I'm going to say that, maybe. Come on, I'm gonna get to the jam. I'm gonna get to the jam. 
I discovered the jam back in college, partially thanks to online record reviewers, uh, yes, including Wilson and Allroy's website, like every other band I know, and partially thanks to some very excited proselytizing from our very own Rich Bunnell. We'll get to that. Uh, because <laughs> if young Rich loved the jam so much, I was pretty sure I would too, and I did. For years, I only had a copy of one song, Thick as Thieves, which is on this album. I downloaded it from Napster, and I treasured that MP3 like it was my own child that I'd taken from someone else under sketchy legal circumstances. <laughs> but eventually, I bought the box set that contains all of the jam's music, uh, entitled Direction, Reaction, Creation. And from there, I became a total jam head. That is not a real thing, but it should be. I don't have proof that Paul Weller was the voice of a generation, but if I'd been a young person in 1970s Britain, he'd have been a voice for me. A lot of what he sang in the 1970s still resonates 40 years later and thousands of miles away. Paul Weller captured a mindset that I vividly remember from my teens and early 20s when you want to make things better and you swear the way to do that is to complain about the hypocrisies of those in power. You hate liars. The idols of your youth come crashing down, if only because you realize that, despite what you'd been taught as a kid, the people running the world are just human, and sometimes they screw up, and sometimes they're lousy people. That kind of thing may always rankle you, even anger you, but it's most disillusioning right on the cusp of adulthood, which is where Paul Weller was when he wrote these songs. I felt that disillusionment at the time, and I brought truth to power by writing snarky newspaper columns in my high school newspaper. Paul Weller felt it, and he attacked his guitar and spewed lyrical venom towards the powerful, the callous, the comfortable, and the hypocritical. You can make your own decision as to whose art has endured. Well, since you already mentioned me, Ben, I'm just going to go next. Uh, I personally got into the jam as a teenager, and, and this is another story that starts with pop-up video, uh, <laughs> specifically their episode featuring uh, Band-Aid's classic, Do They Know It's Christmas? And I recognize most of the artists in there, like like Bono, Banana Rama, and my boys, Duran Duran. Uh, but then one bloop said Paul Weller from the jam. And my reaction was, oh, 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 I don't know this person. I don't know who that is. Must investigate. Must investigate immediately. So at the time, the jam's albums weren't in print in the States, and I could only hear them through whatever bits and pieces I could scrap together on the internet pre-YouTube. Um, I can't remember the name of the site, but I found a pre-Pandora jukebox that had their very, very Beatlesque song Monday on it. Uh, from the album Sound Effects, and I loved it, and it convinced me that I needed more. I went to Rasputin Music in Campbell in the Silicon Valley, and I spent a lot of allowance money on expensive imports, and I played the hell out of them to get my money's worth in the process, proselytizing them to Ben, like he mentioned. I, we talked on AM all the time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, buying expensive imports, it's the kind of thing you have nostalgia for, even though it was objectively a pain in the ass, uh, sort of like <laughs> making a boot disc for a PC game. Uh, but I look back on it fondly, and I've just loved the jam ever since. Uh, but what about you, Dan? Uh, well, along with X-Ray Specs, the jam is a band that I discovered through Rhino's terrific box set, No Thanks, the 70s Punk Rebellion. And to be honest, the two songs on there didn't leave a huge impression on me at the time. What were they? 
Uh, it was uh, in the city, and this is the modern world. I think were the two. But at some point, I acquired a copy of All Mod Cons, which I liked. But it, again, I just kind of filed it away. And really, it wasn't until I heard the song "That's Entertainment" where I kind of decided to dig deeper and hear some of their later stuff. And um, to my surprise, I found that the more they kind of branched away from their punk and mod roots, the more interesting they got, and the more I think polished the songwriting became. And um, I'm still, I don't go terribly deep with the jam, but I've really grown to love uh, setting suns and sound effects. And John, I understand you have no history with the jam. So what's your history with the jam? I have a very, it's a very scant history. Um, So I knew that Rich uh, loved them with a deep abiding passion. And somehow I never bothered to listen to them until my er early 30s. Um, And even now I only have uh, two of their albums. I have uh, uh, all all mod cons and setting suns. However, I did hear, um, I did become familiar with Paul Weller uh, through a different uh, means, actually in my early 20s. So there was a a DVD I had of a performance that The Who did uh, in 2000 at the Royal Albert Hall uh, of a a benefit concert. And in this concert, they had a number of guests appear. And one of the guests who appeared uh, was Paul Weller. He uh, came on stage and he performed a duet of So Sad About Us uh, with Pete Townsend. So sad about us. So sad about us. Sad, never meant to break up. Sad, sports we'll never make up. Sad about us. And I always remember really, really liking that duet. I thought he had a great voice and a great presence, and somehow I had no inclination to actually seek out any more of his music for about a dozen years after that. But eventually I decided, uh, you know what, I kind of really like uh, late 70s punk and, and, and post-punk, and I decided, okay, I've, I finally got to hear this band. Um, and Setting Suns just w- was an album that I liked but didn't know why, just because I never really digged deep into it. Now, in listening to this over the last uh, couple of months especially, I've developed a tremendous fondness for it. Um, even if I don't understand the words uh, most of the time, unless I'm reading them, um, I found a lot of, of things to enjoy about it, even as a relative newcomer to it. Wow, that's way more history than I expected. I didn't do my homework about you, John. I, I'm not as open of a book as you might think, even though I've written thousands of thousands of pages about myself. <laughs> I'll have to study up on them. So, Ben, tell us about the jam. Jam formed in 1972 in Woking, Surrey, England. Woking is about 24 minutes southwest of London by train and thus is part of the London commuter belt. 
Interestingly, Woking was also where H.G. Wells wrote War of the Worlds, and it plays a big part in the book's setting. Without giving a lot away, Wokingians did not fare too well against the Martians. Several years later, and in reality, when the band formed, leader Paul Weller was all of 14 years old, and he was a nut for early American rock and roll, American R&B, and the music of The Who. There were several lineup changes before the lineup solidified, with Paul Weller on guitar and lead vocals, Bruce Foxton on bass and backing vocals, and Rick Buckler on drums. From the beginning, Paul Weller's lyrics were about something. A staunch liberal, he went after really everyone, sleazy government figures, complacent society folk, brainwashed suburbanites, hey, that's me, anyone he felt should be doing more than they were to make society a better place. He sang these lyrics angrily with a thick local accent to the extent that you might miss some individual words, but you never miss his forcefulness or his sincerity. Weller was heavily influenced by the mods. The mods were a subculture of young people that flourished in Britain from the late 1950s through the 1960s. They wore nice suits, they rode motor scooters, and listened to an eclectic mix of rock, soul, R&B, and ska music. At least two big British bands of the mid-60s, The Who and The Small Faces, dipped their toes in mod culture. And Paul Weller loved The Who and The Small Faces, who, at least for a time, delivered American R&B music through the lens of a small British rock and roll combo. Unlike the stereotype of punk musicians, the jam could play their instruments. Weller never showed off on guitar, and he probably despised anyone who did, but he played sharp, scraggly, loud riffs that made his songs zip along. Bruce Foxton was a fantastic bass player who added a stubby but elegant counterpoint to Weller's direct melodies. He also provided backing vocals that added further layers to what could have been overly simple music. And Rick Buckler was an excellent drummer, again, never show-offy, but explosive and creative and always on the mark. Before the band recorded Setting Suns in 1979, they'd recorded a number of standalone singles and three albums entitled In the City, The Modern World, and, as mentioned before, All Mod Cons. In the City, in particular, established them as punks, though, like The Clash, they retained the attitude, but they branched out creatively, and I think, as Dan rightly pointed out, they got better from there. They had some chart success, but they didn't hit the top 10 until one of the singles from Setting Suns, which we'll talk about later, a song called Eaton Rifles. Over the course of their career, they released 18 top 40 singles in a row and had four number one hits. The jam are interesting in that in England, they were huge, monstrous, jamgantic, but they got almost no play <laughs> in America. And why is that? Some of it can be chalked up to the lyrics. When the Beatles sang about wanting to hold your hand... Americans, we got that. What can I say? We are uncommonly insightful and culturally sensitive. But oh, yeah. when, <laughs> Go us! <laughs> but when the jam sang about council houses and flats and told people to, quote, sup up your beer and collect your fags, there's a row going on near Slough, unquote, it's perhaps forgivable that Americans were confused and maybe not as affected by Paul Weller's insights into life. Why couldn't he just love us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was our loss, and I count myself in this. I was one year old when their final album, The Gift, came out in 1982, and I ignored it. And damn it, I should have known better. Ben, I was negative one years old, and even I listened to it then. <laughs> it was a failure on my part. 
After Setting Suns, the jam recorded two more albums, 1980's Sound Effects, that's effects with an A, and the aforementioned 1982 album The Gift. The Gift was their first and only number one album. And then Paul Weller broke up the band. He did it at the height of the jam's fame and commercial success, when record company executives were probably begging him to make a follow-up like Son of the Gift or Re-Gift or Bride of Gift. Gift takes Manhattan. Yes, <laughs> because he felt the band had run its course and he didn't want to slide into mediocrity and because he's a true iconoclast. He also didn't talk to Bruce Foxton or Rick Buckler for decades afterwards because he's an even truer misanthrope. Okay, well, we're going to get to Setting Suns in just a second, but first we're going to take a break for some plugs. So let's hit it. Hey, everyone. I have a podcast I want to share with you, produced by my good friend and longtime jam fan, James Boo. It's called Self-Evident, and it focuses on telling Asian America's stories and challenging narratives about identity in general. I got a chance to see a live performance of the third episode, the talk we were supposed to have, and the fully produced version was even better. You can subscribe to Self-Evident wherever podcasts are found, and I just want to note that I met James in a music club in college called Nerd Noise, and this is my shout-out to them as well. If you want a plug like that, good news, we've added a new tier to our Patreon for listeners to promote their own projects. If you go to patreon.com slash discordpod and pledge at the $10 level for two months, we'll enthusiastically read your copy during this segment. Your project slash plug must, of course, remain within the boundaries of good taste at our discretion. Finally, if you have a second, please rate us, or better yet, write us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast service that has ratings. And please spread the word about Discord and Rhyme. We see ourselves as a podcast for music nerds who usually don't listen to podcasts because it takes valuable, precious time away from music. With that, back to the show. We are back for the jam. Let's, uh, let's start setting suns up. So the first track is Girl on the Phone. Phone's ringing, dude. the opener to the album is a little beyond me. The narrator is talking about a girl who calls him on the phone and knows everything about him, his height, his weight, every record he's ever listened to. He's not sure who this girl is, though she says she met him a long time ago. I think I sound like one of those overly literal Wikipedia entries, so I hope that one of my co-hosts can jump in in a minute with some insight. Not really. <laughs> All right. For all I know, Girl on the Phone is a stealthy attack on former Chancellor of the Exchequer Dennis Healy's disastrous monetary policy. And that would probably make me feel better. I like knowing that Paul Weller has his teeth on someone's throat, even if I don't know whose throat or why he's biting them. Impressively, the girl on the phone even knows the size of Weller's c***. For years, thanks to Weller's thick, woking brogue, and because he splits the word across two verses, I never noticed his naughty insertion of the word. I guess it just didn't stick out that much. (laughs) Girl on the Phone is musically ambitious, at least for the jam. Paul plays a scratching, bouncy riff in the left channel and a series of guitar effects in the right channel, including sounding like a wailing alarm. 
there are sound effects like odd percussion and a ringing telephone. And it's got the elements you can, but never should take for granted in a jam song. A catchy melody, a wry lead vocal, a pumping bass line, interesting and reliable drumming. I might have picked a meteor song to lead off the album, but you'll never complain while Girl on the Phone is on the turntable. I appreciate any reference to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, by the way, Ben. That's my favorite word in the English language. So, What do you think, Dan? I think it's actually a really great opener. Um, it, it's funny that you know the the. I don't know if we're gonna discuss the the U.S. track list, which is basically flip sides one and two. That is so stupid. So track one of the U.S. version is "Burning Sky." No, which is a weird opener to me. So I think you know it's it's kind of a lightweight song, but I think it's a nice kind of snappy, energetic opener. And as far as the what the song means, I, I saw a lyric or a, a interview where they asked him if it was based on anything particular and he said that he just they needed two more songs than the album, so he just kind of knocked this and private hell out like just like they were nothing <laughs> this is just a toss-off and it's pretty good Stupid toss-off geniuses <laughs> it is really funny to me coming coming this early it's uh, how quickly the band does away with any pretense of this being a concept album just right <laughs> off the bat and weller himself actually rejected even the term concept album in the first place saying it reminded him too much of genesis and elp which means he'll probably never make friends with john i'm sorry john. <laughs> no, i get it <laughs> But uh, yeah, this this was specifically put on the album to lighten the mood, is my understanding. The rest of it is just so dark and pessimistic, with the, with another exception that we'll get to at the end. But what do you think, John? So the thing that interests me the most about the jam, especially on this album, is the way that they uh, work in allusions to the bands that they clearly like a lot and take elements from albums and bands that they like and and find a way to do something new with it. So Ben, you mentioned that you're not entirely sure why this would open the album. I think it clearly needs to open the album, and I'll tell you why. I think that this is a clear allusion to Party Line. Oh. Uh, by, the, by the Kinks? Yeah, I've been saving this for two weeks. I've been dying to break this out. I was wondering, So the opener yeah. to Face to Face, uh, Party Line, is a song by Dave Davies where he seems basically about talking with some uh, with people on phones and, how, and various things about the connection that he has uh, with them. And I think that... that starting with the phone, like is very, very purposeful. It, it's calling back to uh, a very, very iconic start to a very iconic uh, Kinks album. Hello, who's that speaking, please? <laughs> And from there, it's yeah, it's a very playful song, and yes, it doesn't have anything to do with the quote-unquote concept. I don't really care about the concept on this album. There isn't much of one. I listen to this, yeah, I listen to this as a set of songs, and I think this is a great, a, a great opener. I think it's it's very punchy. I think it uh, has a lot of drive, and it's extremely memorable. Another track one phone song is. Uh parallel lines hanging on the telephone yeah <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that and john that was worth waiting for that, that was yeah. that blew my mind <laughs> okay well that's a that's a quick light track one let's get to the meteor second track thick as thieves which ben already mentioned and is amazing <laughs> spoiler beginning kind of reminds me of just like heaven yeah <laughs> yeah i've got a lot of hate that sounds like this <laughs> <laughs> Which came first? I don't really know the cure. Oh, this came well first. That's from 87, I believe. 
Thickest Thieves was the first jam song I ever heard, and it might still be my favorite. That said, for the longest time, I had no idea what the title meant. I knew that the song expressed nostalgia for childhood friendships that had disappeared, but thick. Were they like Fat Albert and his buddies? <laughs> then I thought it was one of the other British meanings of thick, meaning stupid and oblivious. So maybe Weller was saying, hey, we used to be idiots, but we're okay now. Finally, I learned that thick also means close. And that thick as thieves is a British idiom, like knackered as a hedgehog or two wheels short of a lorry. Actually, those aren't real, but you're welcome to go over there and popularize them. Our British listeners hate us now. <laughs> <laughs> so the narrator and his friends used to be really close, thick as thieves. Apparently pulling off a heist really brings people together. But years later, they're not nearly as thick anymore. So it's a song for anyone who's ever grown apart from old friends. As Weller sings, thick as thieves us will stick together for all time. And we meant it, but it turns out just for a while. And this was the old days. You left school or your hometown, and most of the people you loved just fell off the edge of your map. You couldn't even scroll through Facebook to confirm that your old friends have beautiful kids and a perfect marriage and are all around happier than you are. Thick as thieves is the work of an old soul. Weller's lyrics sparkle, telling a story of a glorious youth, sprinkling in images that are unbearably poetic. He sings forcefully, but with sadness, and Bruce Foxton harmonizes beautifully behind him. Weller's guitar riff is pointed, sad, and nostalgic. It'll warm you on winter nights. And Rick Buckler is as sharp as he's ever been on drums, displaying a mastery of dynamics, never letting up for a second, from the opening drum roll to the final cymbal crash. Sometimes the guitars drop out and it's just Weller and Foxton over a steady rhythm and it's wrenching and mesmerizing. I'll quit gushing. There's one jam song that I might like better than Thick as Thieves and I'll talk about it at the end of the podcast. But in any case, that one is more of a Paul Weller showcase. Thick as Thieves showcases the three-headed monster from Woking England at their collective best. Yeah, I agree, Ben. And I read a good quote from Trouser Press from the time that said, I quote, there are no holes in the jam sound. And that's a perfect description of this song to me. Like, this is a great example of how a power trio can fill out a sound in ways besides being loud. Um, yeah. And Weller's Pete Townsend, like, rhythm playing, and you have Foxton's fat, pillowy bass, um, and especially Buckler's drumming, which is practically the lead instrument of the song. It just completely carries it forward, and he's always doing something interesting. Uh, I love this song about as much as you do. It's probably also not my favorite jam song, but it's a really, really important one for me just in terms of how I interpret songwriting. Like, not I'm not thinking of the lyrics because I wasn't able to make out most of Weller's lyrics until I started <laughs> reading them two weeks ago. <laughs> it's more that this song taught me that a song doesn't really have to have a hook to be a great song. It's It's kind of like reading a really wonderful chapter in a novel where no plot motion happens and you just spend time getting to know the characters. Uh, it's just there. It's just a nice, like... This probably isn't my favorite jam song, like I said, but it really captures to me why they were a great band. And to toot my own horn again, it is a wonderful track, too, after something as purely catchy and frivolous as Girl on the Phone. <laughs> it's becoming your brand. Uh, John, how about you? Yeah, this is a great one. Um, this song absolutely roars. It's just it's just this this great assault of sound. But actually, the thing that I like most about it is that, that brief round. Yeah. 
just this great little extra idea that maybe the song could have gotten by just fine without of without it but it works really really super well now conceptually uh one thing that really, or, or lyrically, I suppose, one thing that really jumped out at me um, after I listened to this a bunch of times is this song is basically a ref- it, it, the mirror reflection of Do You Remember Walter? I thought of that too. <laughs> Walter, remember when the world was young and all the girls knew Walter's name? Walter, isn't it a shame the way? Except where Do You Remember Walter is written from the perspective of the the person who's already gone through the period of losing, uh, of growing old and growing apart after they said, oh, we're not going to split up. Uh, Weller is writing this from the perspective of the person who knows this is probably going to happen. The songs really, really complement each other well in, in, in that sort of regard and yeah, it, it again, like it's like if someone wants to be c- cynical, they could be like, "Oh, he's just he's just aping ideas from the case." Well, yeah, that's that's their shtick. That's part of of what they do. But they find new ways to take these concepts, which are fundamental to the human experience, and ways to reappropriate them in new ways. And I think he does an excellent job of that here. I thought, do you remember Walter was about Breaking Bad? <laughs> <laughs> And just just to clarify, uh, do you remember Walter is a track from the Kinks album? Uh, the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society from the late 60s, although I don't know exactly which year. I think it's 68. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not going to inject any controversy in this conversation. Yeah, th- 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 <laughs> I love this song, too. Um, one thing I do want to point out, though, is just in general, Bruce Foxton's bass playing is just excellent on this entire album but here i really love that bendy bass note he does during the verses uh that little burr you hear um yeah mm-hmm. and you know one thing that i did notice is that the the bridge of this song reminds me a lot of the bridge to the buzzcocks i don't mind kind of that same i think it's the same two chords but i guess i won't accuse my plagiarism <laughs> they were i mean they were all kind of ripping each other off at that yeah. point i think i think there's a sex pistol song that rips off the riff from a song from the jams first album but that's vague and i don't know which two songs are so i think you're thinking of holidays in the sun and in the city yeah there you yeah. go all right <laughs> you, you just justified my comment by knowing something <laughs> i don't know a lot about the sex pistols but when i do <laughs> there's not much to know it's true are we done here? Yeah. Uh, Have a good night, guys. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have eight more songs, Ben. Sorry. What? Well, if we're thick as thieves, let's go to private hell. <laughs> private hell? You don't salute a private Ben. <laughs> oh, that's true. Hey, have we 
mention that it's Dan's birthday today. Happy birthday, <gasps> Dan. Oh, thank you. All right. Great song to choose. Yeah. On, uh, <laughs> on that note, holy, holy heck is this song depressing. Private Hell is a portrait of an aging woman addicted to Valium. Uh, Paul Weller draws in excruciating detail her lifeless marriage, her empty routine, her hazy mindset, her children and grandchildren who don't keep in contact with her. Even the man that she once loved is now bald and fat. Ouch. What punk can draw such stunningly sad pictures? What young man can get so deeply into the life of a middle-aged woman? Who is this guy? Paul Weller usually punches up, not down, so I'd like to believe that he has sympathy for this woman that he's writing about, rather than contempt for the choices she's made. But it's not totally apparent here which direction he goes in. Musically, Private Hell is taught another ska-influenced rock song with a pumping bass line and a driving drum track. Weller plays rhythm guitar in one channel and lead in another. As usual, there's no solo, no showing off at all. The melody is kind of undistinguished, and I wish there was a more memorable chorus. The song makes it on energy and leanness, and man, those lyrics. Those lyrics are depressing, and they will stick with you. Happy birthday, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you pick up from that, Dan? (laughs) I I love this one, actually. Um, I find it incredibly effective. Uh, And I definitely read it as sympathetic. Okay. Because I think it's kind of shows, like, I guess, the choices that, you know, these people have in their lives, really. But um, I, I just find that the, just musically, the way it just keeps building with the stress and exhaustion, I think it really works with the lyrics really well. And um, the lyrics, yeah, they're depressing, but I, I kind of like depressing lyrics sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a this is a really good one. It's like you get the sense here that Paul Weller just really, really does not want to get old. Oh yeah. yeah. Like this this is the concept of hope I die before I get old, like stretched to its its most depressing logical conclusion. I mean it's it's hard to pick which lines are the are the hardest. Like there's the one about the morning slips away in a valium haze and catalogs and numerous cups of coffee in the afternoon. The weekly food is put in bags and you float off down the high street. And there's just this just this sense of you're just kind of existing and you're not really sure why. And the the music that surrounds it, like it almost just kind of feels like the fires of hell <laughs> as much as you can. Um with, with with the instruments that they had it's it just feels like everything's burning around you as you're just going through the the mundane boredom of of shuffling through the rest of your existence like what kind of 21 year old writes lyrics like this <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is again like i've i've really come to like this album a lot more um in the in the last few weeks that i've gotten to know the lyrics better after just kind of floating for a while not really knowing what to do and yeah, like just just the power, the emotional power, the heft of what he's he's pulling out, just ideas that someone his age should not be able to come up with. It's it's really quite astounding. Well, with the caveat that it's amazing that the lyrics come from a twenty one year old, they are kind of observational. Like it reminds me of Allison Janney's housewife character in American Beauty, and how that's kind of an it's an effective observation, but 
doesn't really get inside her head in any meaningful way. And mm-hmm. I'm probably expecting too much from Weller in his early 20s, but it just speaks to how amazing most of the lyrics on this album are, that this is one of the lesser ones to me. But actually, as of recently, Weller has actually started playing a more sparse arrangement of this song as part of his solo sets, as recently as last year. And it, it resonates a lot more in that context, both because he's lived just several more decades since then, and also because we live in a post-Me Too world, and these lyrics are just a lot more resonant these days. Closer than close a mirrored image of what you wanted to be As each day goes by a little more You can't remember what it was you wanted anyway. Another thing is apparently the bass and drum intro is inspired by Joy Division Hmm, that makes sense yeah, and I quote Weller saying, people don't notice because they're all looking for the Who and the Kinks and the Beatles. And what what is not? <laughs> yeah, well, John's looking for the Kinks. <laughs> Paul Weller hates us for, for liking this album so much, I think, so there's nothing we can do. <laughs> We've lost our biggest fan. <laughs> go give us a three-star rating, Paul. <laughs> okay, let's go on to track four, Little Boy Soldiers. There's a fire that I can't be bothered to argue with the well. What's the point? Better to take your shots and drop down. They, they, they send you home in a pine overcoat with a letter to your mouth. So you find the clothes on someone better and a note to say sustain (laughs) little boy soldiers is a suite of musical fragments all of them catchy and compelling i think that weller is speaking as a former british soldier who's being called back into service by a country that quote never even knew what my name was he laments further these days i find that it's all too much to pick up a gun and shoot a stranger but i've got no choice so here i come And then he flashes back to his days as a little boy soldier for the British Empire. Quote, shoot, shoot, shoot and kill the natives. You're one of us and we love you for that. Think of honor, queen and country. You're a blessed son of the British Empire. God's on our side and so is Washington. And then to drive the point home so we know there's no ambiguity in how he feels. He says, we ruled the world. We killed and robbed the f***ing lot. But we don't feel bad. It was done beneath the flag of democracy. That's dark and cynical, a condemnation of the British Empire and its adventures around the world and what it all did to the young men and women who were swept up in it. Who is this angry and cynical and poetic at age 21? Wait, all of us are. But who is actually good at it? Paul Weller and not too many other people. The finale of the suite is even more devastating. He sings... They send you home in a pine overcoat with a letter to your mum saying, find enclosed one son, one medal, and a note to say he won. Ah! As, as an illustration of the futility and waste of war, that's up there with the song Some Mother's Son by the Kinks. Unlike most sweets, Little Boy Soldiers is refreshingly taut and short. So if there's anything you don't like, it's gone before you have too much time to dwell on it. And the catchiest bits stick with you. 
The message definitely does. I mean, a note to say he won. That is the knife being twisted inside of you, then jerked back and forth like Weller is an abstract artist and you're the blood splattered easel. Well, I love that first verse where he's directly addressing the government. And I'm going to reach back to high school English class because the poetic device there is an apostrophe. And I'm not talking about the punctuation there. I'm talking about the addressing of a usually absent person or a usually personified thing rhetorically. And it's, I love the way he does it, too. And like that sing songy voice. It's funny how you never really knew what my name was like. It's so. Um, as for the song itself, it's fun having a little mini suite on such a short album, but I always have trouble remembering the individual sections because they go by so fast. I had to study this one a lot. Case in point, I didn't notice until just recently that the final chord of the song fades out for literally a full 30 seconds, like <laughs> as if it's a, excuse me, and that's a full like one seventh of the song. This isn't a very long song. And it's <laughs> as if it's like a slow pan across a landscape of dead soldiers used for cannon fodder. Um, and it's a great thematic lead into the next song, actually, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I like the main section of this song. The middle part, I kind of wish he pulled off a little smoother. It feels a little clunky to me. It doesn't quite, those transitions are a little jarring. Yeah. Um, but I do like the lyrics and the, the, the meat of the song I enjoy, but it's, it's a little clumsy to me overall, I find. I do think that this song is a little, it, like it, it's one that I have trouble uh, remembering um, if I if I don't go out of my way to listen to it like three times in a row, but the thing that that, that strikes me and, and kind of impresses me about it, or at least interests me about it, is you have these these very very dark anti war lyrics, but the music is almost like a, a kind of forced optimism, hmm. and the, the the forced optimism that I think of here is like it's it's not it's not legitimate. It's kind of a jingoistic. Optimism, like I'm, I'm being uplifting because uh, I have to, and this is expected of me by, by the institutions, whether the military, the government, um, and it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's this interesting subversive juxtaposition. Um, I think again, like as a song unto itself, it's, it's one, as a song divorced from the lyrics, it's one that I find uh, a little hard to hold on to. But as, as a whole. I find it rather interesting. I don't really see it as a weak link per se. It's maybe just a little lesser. So I want to bring up what a lot of people have alluded to, and that's a disconnect between the music and the lyrics and the jam. Uh, because a lot of the lyrics I'm talking about now, for even though I've loved this album for 20 years, I never even knew most of what he was saying along the way. And the jam is an example of how you can have great music and great lyrics, but not always the best synthesis between the two. Like the, sometimes, as it, as John just mentioned, you know, the music of a certain song doesn't match the tone of the lyrics. Um, and sometimes the lyrics, you know, they if, if you can't understand them until you read the lyric sheet afterwards, did they really do their job? You know, was he getting the message across? So that that that's a, a slight weakness in Weller's approach. It doesn't make the music any less enjoyable, but I wish that he was kind of better at emphasizing the the really great words that that he adds to each song. Yeah, and it's like in the X-ray specs episode, reading the lyrics is like listening to the commentary track of a DVD or something. <laughs> I like um, that. That's good because I said it in that episode as well. <laughs> <laughs> and Rich, I, I liked what you said about poetry, so I definitely hope that we uh, we hear more about poetry. Uh, as we go on in this episode. Uh, we might. We very well might. Here's a song that's completely unrelated to poetry in any way. Wasteland. 
Wasteland is the closest we'll come to a ballad on setting suns. It's set around a sweet recorder line and a drumbeat that's at a standard rock tempo, but peaceful, at least as the jam goes. Everything's a little softer than usual, which is not to say actually soft. Weller sings gently. He might even be addressing a romantic partner, which is shocking. I normally picture his social life consisting of sitting at home penning angry letters to the sun in the Daily Mail. It's one of Weller's prettiest melodies, so of course he juxtaposes it with the description of a cruddy wasteland. It's a drab and colorless place filled with rubber tires, rusty bicycles, and discarded bric-a-brac. It's the kind of mess that nature would never make. Only man can make a wasteland like this. I'm not sure why he's hanging out at the dump. Uh, most towns have at least one park, and I've been led to believe that many of them have village greens, or at least they used to. But as always, the cynicism is never the overall point. You hear Weller underneath his sarcasm yearning for whatever used to exist in this space before we began dumping our non-biodegradable crap on it. Hopefully we'll be able to reclaim land like that one day and shoot all the old bottles of Coca-Cola into the sun or whatever. Now, apparently the title and theme of Wasteland are an allusion to a poetic work of the same name by Tss Elliot. For, <laughs> for more information on that, we bring in our poetry correspondent, Amanda. This song bears a noticeable resemblance to The Wasteland, an epic poem written by Thomas Stearns Eliot and published in 1922. While it does not feature any specific references, the lyrics borrow some imagery from the first section, titled The Burial of the Dead, specifically the second stanza. <clears throat> what are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock, come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. There's also some similarity to section three, the fire sermon, specifically these lines. The river bears no empty bottles, sandwich papers, silk handkerchiefs, cardboard boxes, cigarette ends, or other testimony of summer nights. It is perhaps worth noting that Eliot also wrote the poems that later inspired the Broadway musical Cats. And thank you, Amanda. Yeah, so thanks, Amanda. Uh, so Paul Weller actually started a publishing wing called Riot Stories with a heavy focus on poetry, uh, interestingly enough. And he published a book called Notes from Hostile Street by Dave Waller, who was a member of an early 70s version of the band, but I think he didn't have enough musical talent. And there's a lot of musical talent in this band. I'm not going to talk out of my ass about what Weller adds to the counter-romantic modernist tradition because I didn't do very well in English Three Honors, but <laughs> I do like the little post-World War II touches he throws in, like gigantic mansions built for rich politicians that overshadow pre-war homes, and just the quote, the holy Coca-Cola tins, which is just on the nose in the best possible way. <laughs> I love it. So in listening to this, uh, again, before I started reading the words my impression of this song was always oh he always he said he finally sounds so happy this must be uh something where he's, <laughs> he's actually feeling chipper he must have been having a good day and then when it's like hmm i should go read the lyrics to this what the hell <laughs> <laughs> like oh all right i mean most i mean the thing that's mostly jumped out at me forever is just like oh the recorders are the recorders are so chipper 
and this is just such a, a bouncy and lovely melody and then like and like you know i'm initially thinking of like almost like Homer Simpson like dancing through the land of chocolate, but now I'm finding out <laughs> like all the, the all the chocolate in the background is poop and or and garbage, and it's just like oh okay, <laughs> that's different. There is a certain tonal cognitive cognitive dissonance going on here. Almost the entire song is in a major key. Yeah, so that was ten minutes ago. <laughs> so this is yeah, a really just happy bouncy song about being in a wasteland. <laughs> But let's go to another happy oh, dancing. Oh, sorry, uh, go for it. We forgot. Dan? About oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, Dan. Sorry, Dan. It's my birthday. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't have a whole lot to add that you guys have already said. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is part of my belief that eclectic jam is better jam. I really like when they kind of veer away from their kind of punkier formula and kind of do something like this. But this is this song's really beautiful. I like it a lot. I'm nodding like that's going to show up on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thumbs up. <laughs> it will once they once podcasting technology improves. <laughs> well, let's go on to another cheerful song, Burning Sky. little sweetness and light on this album uh, musically the song burning sky is another peppy skyish number catchy enough if not up there with the band's best choruses weller plays loud power chords instead of little scraggles on his guitar and the song's rhythm is based on a clever stuttering riff the opening motif sounds like a variation on it's the same old song by the four tops which i will chalk up to weller's love for motown on more on that later in the album like Thick as Thieves, Burning Sky finds Weller inhabiting a middle-aged man looking back on the friendships of his youth. He speaks directly to one old friend in the form of writing a letter. He says he wants to see the old gang, but as he says, quote, work comes first, I'm sure you'll understand. Things are really taking off for me. Business is thriving and I'm showing a profit. You see where this is going. This is a song about adulthood, about how as we get older, we jettison our ideals at best for survival, at worst for the pursuit of riches as their own end. Weller even says as much, quote, the values that we had once upon a time seem stupid now because the rent must be paid. There's cynicism here, absolutely, about what we give up as we strive for comfort and luxury. But I hear empathy too. Weller sings, there's no time for dreams when commerce calls and the tax man's shouting because he wants his dough and the wheels of finance won't begin to slow. Adulthood is f***ing hard. It's not easy to remain the idealized kid you used to be. You can spend your life fighting for your ideals, but that almost never pays a decent wage. And there's a good chance that you'll see your friends living comfortable lives and yearn for it at least a little bit. So most of us compromise. If not our principles, then definitely our ideals. Part of it is that we have to eat, but part of it is simply choosing the easier path in life. 
Similarly, if Weller faults his song's protagonist for choosing the life he did, he also seems to acknowledge that life can trap you. If the protagonist's initial decision was bad, eventually he became as much a victim as anybody else, stuck on the hamster wheel with no way off in sight. Ben, this is a remarkably similar theme to The Last Time I Saw Richard from Joni Mitchell's Blue. I'm sensing a theme in your episode. <laughs> Adulthood is crushing and depressing. Dan, birthday boy, how about you? <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad that I had a reason to revisit this album because in prior listens, I don't know if this song really struck much of a chord with me, but uh, as you may have heard, it's my birthday today. And well, happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Uh, as a 36-year-old working stiff, this song just <laughs> hits me right in the gut in a way that it never would have in my 20s. And also, since the, my first encounter with this album, I've become a Ted Leo fan. Woo. And musically, this sounds a lot like Ted Leo. I'm looking at another day to find that I've got nah, nah, nothing to say. Oh, I'm looking for another way to and just has a really lo- a lot of cool i guess it is kind of like a ska sort of rhythm to it that adds a nice color to it but uh yeah this again is it's probably my favorite song on the album well i've seen ted leo in concert a few times and one of them he covered ghosts by the jam during the encore mm-hmm. so he's a fan he likes this period yeah. of <laughs> <laughs> new wave-ish punk music yeah no it's it's absolutely true this sounds like it could have fit in right on right on to hearts yeah. of oak which is a terrific album uh john how about you yeah this is my favorite on the album too and the the thing that really really strikes me um again focusing primarily on the lyrics is this is probably the the best lyrical depiction of the book of ecclesiastes i can think of in rock Nice. Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes is 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 my favorite book in the Old Testament. So that that really works for me. As in particular, this idea, in particular, the idea of basically the world is just going to keep on going, and the only thing that's going to be constant is is the sky, and and the and the world just kind of indifferent is going to keep turning indifferent to all the comings and goings uh, that we busy ourselves with, that we concern ourselves with. The things that uh, preoccupy us um, in the meantime, and then ultimately, all that's going to last, all that's going to matter, is the world and the sun. And it's a real, and, it, it, and it's it's a it's a concept that like really hits me hard. And it's it's one of the hardest parts, like accepting this this general concept that there are things that are beyond what we think are important as we go through our lives, it's one of the hardest parts of growing older. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's really a treat to me to, to, to see this expressed in song. And then, and as for the music itself, there's a lot of power um, in this song, a, a lot of, uh, of energy, but not out of control energy. And yeah, it's, it, it's one that really, really hits me every time I listen to it now. So I, I'm a Bible newbie. But is that where a, a turn, turn, turn comes from, too? Yes. Okay, because yes. I, I definitely see the same theme in that. But the thing is, like, the turn, turn, turn part is just, it's, it's the most famous and the most poetic part of the book. But there's a lot else to the book beyond that. And um, 
it, 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 it goes off in a lot of directions, some of which are very depressing, and but some of which are basically just come down to you're obsessing over the wrong things because the things you're obsessing over are going to disappear, which I guess is kind of what Turn, Turn, Turn is about. But this is a, a fuller expression, I think. That is that is great. That, that's just a totally different level. I'm, I'm glad you brought that. Yeah, this is a this is a wonderful song. The the band had a standalone single around this time that you probably all know called "When You're Young," uh, and it contains one of Weller's most quoted lines: "The world is your oyster, but the future is a clam," which is basically oh. this. Yeah, the same sort of imagery going on here, just in a different direction. Uh, and you see that theme pop up all over the album, like like you've brought up and. Setting Suns isn't a capital C concept album with a story, because when fans heard that the jam were doing something Jethro Tull would do, they actually started sending in angry and concerned letters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was 1979. Uh, But most of the songs are about growing old and realizing that you're part of a much larger, immovable machine of society and just, yeah, just existence. And to me, yeah, this has the most powerful imagery on the album, just taking this very personal existential despair and just saying that it's uh, as much a part of the world as the sun in the sky. It's And uh, this album is called Setting Suns. It's basically where the album's title comes from. Almost every song is about a setting sun, our setting, our settling daughter, in the case of Private Hell. It's just mm-hmm. utterly devastating to read, especially coming from a 21-year-old. And I concur, one of the hardest things about growing up has been just learning how huge and complex the world is and how hard it is to change it. I like that. But here's a song that fits right into that theme. It's uh, Smithers Jones, track seven. Here we go again. It's Monday at last. He's heading for the Waterloo line. To catch the idea of what a jaunty number. <laughs> <laughs> I sense good things coming for this Smithers Jones fellow. time. <laughs> I kind of love Bruce Foxton's voice. Yeah. I mean, it's not technically great. I can understand what he's saying, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like hearing that because he's he's he. He's very easily overshadowed, but he was hugely important to the sound. By who? (laughs) By the man who was probably writing several of those angry letters to the band about their new direction. Um, All right. Jam bassist Bruce Foxton has been taking notes. His protest song, Smithers Jones, isn't as subtle as Paul Weller's best work, but he's got the structure down. His title character, Smithers Jones, is a good cog in the British capitalist machine. He's proper. He's punctual. He wakes up, puts on his suit, and heads to work. He cares about his promotion and about being able to afford a new car. He's the type of person that musicians in the 60s absolutely hated. See Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees and A Well-Respected Man by the Kinks, and I'm sure you guys can think of other ones if you want. Today, though, the boss wants to speak to Smithers Jones. His co-worker tells him, I hope it's the promotion you've been looking for. Well, I hope so, too, but I've been listening to this album and I would not put money on it. Of course, rather than giving him a promotion, his boss tells him that he's been laid off. Quote, there's no longer a position for you. Ouch. We saw it coming, but still, ouch. In contrast to the lyrics, the music is almost jarringly happy. 
With the exception of a tiny bit of guitar, it's all strings, a quartet playing a bouncier variation on Eleanor Rigby. The band had previously recorded a version of Smithers Jones with rock instrumentation, but they decided to experiment here, and it's a success. Smithers Jones is one of the lesser great songs that the jam recorded because Bruce Foxton was a brilliant bassist, but not nearly the songwriter that Paul Weller was. Still, he's near the top of his game here. And like I said, he understands the official trademarked jam worldview. For all the contempt that Foxton has shown for Smithers Jones in the beginning of the song, by the end of the song, he's only sympathetic. He catches Smithers Jones in his loving arms and reassures him that it's not his fault, that society has brainwashed him and then screwed him over. He gives his creation a soft place to collapse and reassess everything. Part of the message of Foxton's final verse could be straight out of the movie Goodwill Hunting. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. But there's another message which says, I hope you bloody well learn something from this. And there's another message that says, how do you like them apples? <laughs> Boston. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to play the original version of Smithers Jones, which was the B-side to the aforementioned When You're Young single. And it's an interesting contrast. Anyway, the string version is a funny song to play for somebody who has heard the jam described as a punk band, and all of a sudden this song comes on. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was in the car with uh, producer Mike in California just a few weeks ago, and uh, he put my phone on shuffle, and this song came on, and he hadn't heard any other song from this album, and I'm just it was just amusing that this was the introduction <laughs> of all ten of these songs. Anyway, I just want to point out the first line, which I like. Here we go again. It's Monday at last. Like Either Smithers Jones is really excited to get to work, yep. or he's really excited to leave home. Either way, <laughs> this is a sad song. A really sad song. Uh, Dan, how about you? I'm kind of lukewarm on this one. I have a hard time getting past the melodic similarity to The Who is I Can't Reach You, which I mm. hear all the time when I hear this. I'm a billion ages past you, a million years behind you too, a thousand miles up in the air, a trillion times I've seen you Lyrically, I think it's a bit simple compared to Willer's lyrics elsewhere in the album. I thought they kind of tread this ground in a more artful way, whereas here it's a bit obvious. I don't mind this one, but it's not really a highlight for me. Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. So my uh, edition of Setting Suns uh, that I have is actually, a, it's, a, it's a deluxe version. It has a, a live show. Uh, that they did in 1979, and there's a there's a rendition of this song. It's done um, in a version much closer to the uh, to the original B-side version, but if anything, uh, punched up a little more. That that version is much more appropriate for a live performance than trying to do something <laughs> uh, like like this. Um, I think it's fine. It's 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 bouncy and cute, and it's a nice contrast uh, to some of the other music on the album. The one thing that I can't entirely get past is so i i've mentioned previously like there's the allusions uh to to in particular kink songs this song is arthur yeah <laughs> yeah like l lyrically this song is arthur like down 
to the from the album Arthur or the Decline of the British Empire. think of the line like Arthur could be that the world was wrong don't you know it don't you know it or any random uh stanza from that song I feel like you could just tweak a little bit and fit in here and it would it would conceptually fit now it's it's nice um if a bit again obviously telegraphed uh that things are going to be bad but overall the song is fine um I don't think it hurts the album I don't think especially helps it um but it's it's a nice enough inclusion yeah, it's funny that you say obviously telegraph from like the second the song starts. Like, I'm so excited to go to work. <laughs> it's like, oh boy, this isn't going to end well. But overall, I think Smithers Jones is excellent. <laughs> I couldn't resist that one. That was great. That having been said, let's go to track eight Saturday's Kids. song built on a squawking guitar riff and the usual rock solid jam rhythm with a subtle piano counterpoint in some spots there's one melody line the whole way through though the arrangement is buried enough that you don't mind it's a zippy song something that tom hanks's mr white probably would have wanted the wonders to record in that thing you do you mean the oneaters <laughs> plus a spanish version of it but then you notice the lyrics At first, Saturday's Kids just sounds like a barrage of very specific references to working-class British life. The kids in the song like football, that's soccer, they like drinking, they like gambling, they work minimum wage service jobs, at night they dance at the disco, they flirt, and, well, given the description of the stains in the back seats of their cars, they probably bone like there's no tomorrow. Okay, that's who they are and what they do. It even sounds kind of fun, but... And I know this is going to shock you. Saturday's Kids is also a sad and angry song. From the kids' youthful hijinks, Weller moves us forward in time. Quote, think about the future when they'll settle down. Marry the girl next door with one on the way. Within a few years, their lives will be plotted out and nailed down. And if we're wondering what's in store for them at that point, Weller tells us a bit about these kids' parents. They smoke cigarettes. They live wallpaper lives. That's great imagery. And they all die of cancer. That's a little less peppy. These plucky kids are living dead-end lives with very few opportunities for breaking out into a better world. Sure, they make the best of it and have a fun time, but those fun distractions are all they've got. In the song's bridge, Weller sings, Saturday's kids live in council houses. He even repeats that for effect. Council houses, that's public housing in England, built for the poor, subsidized by the government, small, uniform, drab places, 
isolated from the better parts of town and a good long walk from the nearest rungs up the social ladder. Towards the end, Weller even spells things out. Quote, these are the real creatures that time has forgot, not given a thought. It's the system. Hate the system. What's the system? He's very likely staring daggers at the UK's brand new prime minister, Margaret Thatcher. For all that, the song still has bounce. It's not some dreary early Bob Dylan, the sad ballad of England's working poor or whatever. It's catchy pop rock here and gone in less than three minutes. I can't promise that Weller was making a plea to expand social programs for the poor, lengthen compulsory schooling past age 15, improve the quality of sex education, force politicians to work to address income inequality, and what the hell, stop climate change too. But he's definitely not just singing about some kids in baggy pants. Yeah, it's fine. Um, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's, 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 it's upbeat. It's chipper. Um, I really like uh, the, there's a uh, I can't tell if that's a guitar or a piano flourish, but there's near near the end of the song. There's a, an arrangement detail that I, I really like a lot. Um, it is interesting to, to to then take in the lyrics in conjunction with the uh, with the music and just the the upbeat peppiness and then the the drab inevitability of, oh, this there these lives really are just going to be kind of empty and, and they're just going to kind of go from here in a, in a pre-appointed way. Um, so that's an interesting contrast. Um, it's not one of my very favorites on the album, but it's good. Yeah, I kind of agree. I, this is sort of a stretch of the album where I, I get a little, mm, yeah, it, 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 to me, it sounds very clashy. Like it could be right off the Clash's first album. Oh uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like it. Like kind of like what John said, I'll, it, it's got a good energy, but there's not a whole lot that I really kind of like grasp onto with this one. Uh, good lyrics, but musically it's a little kind of just too straight kind of punk for me. And I like punk. <laughs> you all sound like that jerk from the B-52s episode. <laughs> Big jerk. I like this one, Ben. Uh, this okay, one, good. this sort of reminds me of I Love L.A. Like the way Weller is just kind of like cruising through this rah-rah sounding song that describes all of these like really depressing realist vignettes. Like it's like wear cheap perfume because it's all they can afford. We love it. That's a good call. <laughs> Wallpaper lights because they all die of cancer. We love it. Like I do love I Love L.A. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, he also mentions a bunch of British brand names, which means we get to hear some British commercials. Yeah. And, the, and they're delightful commercials. Uh, so the first one is Saturday's Girls Work in Tesco's and Woolworth's. We know what Woolworth's is, uh, especially if you've heard the X-Ray Specs episode. But Tesco is a British department store chain. Yeah. Do you want to buy a quartz digital watch? 30 quid. No, thanks. I got one at Tesco for £17.50. And Green Shield stamps. Don't believe it. <laughs> Disco home and wear. You won't believe what we sell. You won't believe what we sell it for. Go to discos. They drink Baby Sham. Baby Sham is a sparkling, lightly alcoholic, pear-based beverage marketed toward women. It's like the Virginia Slims of, uh, <laughs> of pear champagne. I guess it's called Perry. Love it! Love a Baby Sham? Love a Baby Sham! <laughs> yeah, it's got a nice Georgia Moroder-style groove here. Love your eyes. Love a baby shine. Love a baby shine. Love a baby shine. Yeah. Love a baby shine. Third one. Their mums and dads smoke capstan non-filters. As you can probably guess, capstans are British cigarettes. 
And this commercial's from the 60s. Never, 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 never go, 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 never go without, never go without a capstan. Capstan, capstan. Never, 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 never go, 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 never go without, never go without a capstan. capstan. Yeah, I just hear the Who sell out now. Yes, yes. <laughs> that is immediately what I thought. Like, oh, I get what they're doing now. And then the final one, Drive Cortina's Ford Trim Dashboards, refers to the Ford Cortina, a family car produced by Ford of Britain until 1982. And Phil, who isn't on this episode, is going to love this one. Is it a 30-minute jam? <laughs> this is the toughest, roughest school the car can go to. The racetracks of Europe. And this is what came out. The latest Ford Cortina. Yeah! The latest Cortina never forgot what it learned. And it brings the road holding, performance, maneuverability, and stamina of a race car to your everyday motoring. <laughs> Cortina is big inside, compact outside. Beautiful too, with many different body options, lots of different engine options, and others like automatic transmission. There is not nearly enough Jethro Tull in American car ads. <laughs> <laughs> it's BS. <laughs> Okay, now that we've gone that, through that delightful trip through uh, British commercial culture, let's go to track nine. Probably the most famous song on the album if you're in Britain, The Eaton Rifles. Rifles is one of the jam's most memorable and hard-hitting songs, an explosion of righteous anger and snarling contempt. But what are the Eaton Rifles? Let's start with Eaton. Founded in the year 1440, Eaton is a public school, which in Britain means a private school. I have no idea why, please don't ask me. But it meant that, at least in the past, only the poshest of the posh could go there. 19 British prime ministers have attended Eaton, as have Princes William and Harry. Also, Ian Fleming, Hugh Laurie, Bear Grylls, and Adele's husband. Boris Johnson is also an old Etonian, as they call themselves. So by the time this episode comes out, the college will have most likely added its 20th prime minister. Mm. Yay. <laughs> and the Eton Rifles? Well, Eton's version of the ROTC is the Eton College Rifle Corps. Eton sits next to a working class town called Slough. And understandably, there have been clashes between the hardworking yabos in Slough and the spoiled prats attending Eton. In America, this would be the grounds for a comedy starring Owen Wilson. In Britain, one of these clashes actually got violent, a dust-up between striking workers from Slough and the Eton students who'd been taunting them. When Paul Weller read about it in the paper, he was inspired to write a song. But Eton Rifles isn't a song about one little fight. It's a volley of shots in a class war fired with Weller's trademark biting sarcasm. Understandably, there is zero mystery regarding which side Weller is on. He almost always punches up, not down. 
In the song, he plays one of the townies who got into a scrape with the Etonians. Walking away from the fight, beaten and bloody and sick, he offers up excuses why he lost. All of them jabs at the country's upper class, who are groomed in the best schools and then chosen by their fellow alumni to lead the country. He says of the rich kids, all that rugby puts hairs on your chest. And what chance have you got against a tie and a crest? And we were no match for their untamed wit. The message is that even if the rich kids aren't inherently great fighters, the deck will always be stacked in their favor and against the working class. Somehow their parents' money can even win them a fist fight because it's going to win them everything in life. Next, Weller makes even more pointed attacks on the aristocracy. He taunts them, quote, what a catalyst you turned out to be. Loaded the guns, then you run on home for your tea. In other words, the rich kids who join the military will almost certainly join the officer corps, plan the battles, put the guns in place, and then leave before the fighting begins and the poor kids get blown to bits. So who are the Eaton Rifles? To Weller, they're a joke, a bunch of wimpy rich kids who play soldier in the fancy uniforms that their daddies bought them, forever disconnected from the consequences of the wars that they're destined to start. By the end, Weller is anything but subtle, declaring that he'd prefer the plague to the Eaton Rifles, which, I don't know, the plague was pretty bad. Musically, it's a bomb going off with rumbling eighth notes on bass and slashes of Weller's guitar. It's precise but unrelenting. Two separate refrains that combine to form an unforgettable class anthem. And I should note that Foxton does a fantastic job doubling Weller's vocals, singing just underneath the lead. I do have a little bit more to say about the song, but for now, what do you all think of it? I just want to jump in with something uh, really quickly um, on the public versus private schools thing. I think I know the answer to this. My understanding is that a public school in Britain means that there's not a religious prerequisite. uh, So you don't have to be part of a specific denomination in order to get in. Yeah. Um, This is a, a terminology that goes back many centuries. As for the song, the song is awesome. Um, if you can listen to this in a car and not sing really loudly and out of tune to the chorus, you are dead inside. <laughs> like, and I ha- again for years, I had no idea what most of the lyrics uh, to this to this song were. I just knew that that chorus just made me want to be angry at something, even though I wasn't entirely sure what it was. The, the rhythm section is just a monster uh, in this song. And there's just, just there's just so much power and so much rage, but like controlled rage. And I'm really, really impressed by this song. God, this song is so good. Uh, it just sounds like a street fight. <laughs> I mean, it is just Street Fighter 2. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is just so intense and like john said yeah it's it's still controlled it's not just like completely it's not they're not just flailing but it's yeah it's god the song it's it's awesome yeah <laughs> the place of eden in british culture is interesting and just just the whole angle of this song like uh, america here in america we still perpetuate the myth of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and tons of politicians just 
happen to come from the Ivy League. Uh, but in <laughs> class-conscious Britain, Eton is pretty generally accepted as a direct route to Parliament, and that that results in a lot of just yeah. There's just a lot of class conflict just baked into the school's reputation. Um, have any of you seen the Up series or any of the uh, movies? I'm aware of it. I, I think I watched one of them. No. Well, for listeners who don't know about it, it's a docu series that has come out every seven years since the early '60s, following the same group of children as they age. The most recent one, 63 Up, actually just recently aired in the UK, and I'm really really excited to watch it. Like <laughs> the way some people get ex- got excited about Harry Potter novels, um, <laughs> including myself. Uh, but the original intent of the series was to document how stringent the UK class system is, and it does this by separating the subjects into groups based on what school they attend. Um, and I just thought that that was interesting in the context of this song. Oh, one note, uh, Slough was where the UK office takes place. That's true. Cool. Mm-hmm. So I have one more thought on the Eton Rifles. David Cameron, former British Prime Minister and noted Toff, that's British for weenie, counted Eton Rifles among his favorite songs when he was a teenager. And he was an Etonian. Didn't he get that he was the enemy? Maybe. Cameron has said, quote, it meant a lot, some of those early jam albums we used to listen to. I don't see why the left should be the only ones allowed to listen to protest songs. He later added, quote, of course, I understood what it was about. It was taking the mick out of people running around the cadet force. And he was poking a stick at us. But it was a great song with brilliant lyrics. I've always thought that if you can only like music, if you agree with the political views of the person who wrote it, well, it'd be rather limiting. He said all that with a British accent, but I can't do that. There is some wisdom here. And it's got to be hard to be a conservative music fan because, for better or worse, the best rock music tends to be made by lefties. It's not fair that they're stuck with God Bless the USA and Ted f***ing Nugent. (laughs) Paul Weller, of course, took issue with David Cameron being a fan of the song. He said, the Eaton Rifles, quote, wasn't intended as a f***ing jolly drinking song for the Cadet Corps. And that quote is definitely on brand. Very. Still... If you ever saw David Cameron as leader of the opposition attack Gordon Brown during prime minister's questions, it becomes plausible that he did absorb something from Paul Weller. If not the politics, then certainly the venomous anger. I just wish he'd shot it in a more empathetic direction. This just seemed like kind of like the born in the USA of Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the one I'm thinking of is how uh, for years uh, Paul Ryan was an open fan of rage against the machine (laughs) without understanding that he was the machine. He used to pump iron to it. And then later he walked back. He walked back his fandom. That always cracked me up a bit. But anyway, on a lighter note, I have a clip I couldn't, I can't wait to play. Uh, so this is a, so this is a group of Eton students who call themselves Rather Rum doing a parody of the Psy 2012 hit Gognum Style called Eton Style. Oh, and it no. is the worst thing I have ever heard. <laughs> Wake in the morning at 8.30, pretty standard. If you don't haul ass to chapel, then you're late and reprimanded. They'll close the doors right in your face and they will leave you stranded. Then you're in tardy. Oh, Chin God, it's terrible. I hate this so much. <laughs> I'm going to play the whole song. Is that okay, Dan? Sure. <laughs> I, I used to be an Anglophile. <laughs> Music was a mistake. <laughs> I hope that was done like after Gang of Style was even a thing. <laughs> it, was- it was it was also in 2012. <laughs> okay. They were right on that. Okay, if we're done with Eaton Rifles, you might know this one, but in a completely different version. This is Heat Wave. <laughs> 
Wave by Martha Reeves and the Vandellas may be the best Motown song. Written by the legendary team of Holland, Dozier, and Holland, it was released as a single in 1963 and reached number four on the charts. Powerfully sung like all of Martha Reeves' songs, its arrangement is electrifying and danceable. It swings like very few popular songs do. Idols The Who loved Heat Wave, opening their sets with it and recording a cover version on their second album, A Quick One. So it may have been an inevitability that Weller and the Jam covered it, though its placement on such a serious album is a little jarring. The arrangement is pretty full for a jam song. There are horn charts, a sax solo, elaborate harmonies, a plunking piano played by Mick Talbot, who would later co-found the band The Style Council with Paul Weller. Bruce Foxton is dancing like a madman on bass. I love that Weller unequivocally loves Motown without any cynicism or ironic distance. It's refreshing, and his band's take on Heatwave is fun. It's frenetic and direct and exciting. But that's about all it is, although there's definitely room for that. I read a feature from NME where they followed Paul Weller around during the production of this album, and they they all listened to the album together, and this song came on at the end, and Paul Weller said, yeah, maybe it's my way of saying f*** a lot of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that that's uh, that about sums up Heatwave on this album, but I, I don't know, I just this interview is particularly hilarious, because uh, like he goes on to say, people might see it as a cop-out, I don't know, it's like we were saying before, after all the argument and discussion, it's like, let's go out for a pint and a dance, and then the interviewer asks him, is that how you see it? And he says, it wasn't intended as that, but that's one way it could be interpreted. And that pretty much like sums up how Paul Weller interacted with interviewers in general. It's it's hilarious <laughs> and maddening. Like, uh, just, just to read any interview f- with him at the time, like, uh, they're both amusing and frustrating to read. He gave answers that don't really work as pull quotes and resist any attempt to draw the band into a larger narrative. And, <laughs> Like, and the way Enemy puts it, uh, intentionally or not, he succeeds in emphasizing the absurdity of the packaged small room interview by immersing himself into the interview vacuum at most only halfway. That's good. So many reviews of this album essentially say, yeah, this is a great album. It's too bad about Heatwave. And that strikes me as so stupid. This isn't right. a concept album. People and, and people act as if like this isn't just a bunch of of guys in their early 20s who are playing music that they like to play. I mean, yes, they've had a lot of serious things to say on the rest of the album, but yeah, as, as Weller said, like there comes a point at the end where it's like, we're not just trying to change the world. Like we're just trying to do things that we enjoy and to, and, and to find some joy in, and enjoyment in life. This is a great cover. It's, it's so energetic. Like the, the, the details and the arrangements are, 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 are really well thought out uh, for something that is still like, you know, in a certain sense, a toss off, but it's a, it's a really ingenious toss off. And I could not possibly imagine this album um, ending in another way. I mean, yes, I suppose in a way you say, oh, it's more conceptually complete if it ends with eaten rifles, but, but then it wouldn't have heat wave. It wouldn't end on the really, really fun note. Like this is an album of songs of great songs. And this is a great performance. 
John, you make a great point. I, I think I'm convinced. I've just seen that that point made so many times, and it, it drives me bonkers every time I see it. Well, this wasn't. Yeah, this was fully intended to be on the album, is my understanding. Uh, hmm. Uh. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I, I don't dislike. Dan, do you it. hate heat? Wave? I don't <laughs> like this song. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's well performed. It's a good performance. Uh, I don't need it. Uh, I could live without it. <laughs> Leaves podcast forever. <laughs> Uh yeah uh, yeah I'd be okay if it ended at eating rifles myself uh but it's not bad but it's not essential for me Dan that's a great point you've convinced me <laughs> it's my birthday oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no I feel guilt <laughs> happy birthday Dan <laughs> Ben what are your overall thoughts on the album and the jam so there's a meme on the internet whose exact wording I don't remember, but it captures a, a very common mindset among people in their late 30s, which is me. When someone in their early 20s tries to be profound, we laugh at how little they know about life. But if they pick up their guitar and sing the same words, we swoon and marvel about how their insights are like a window into our souls. And that is definitely true here. Paul Weller was a 20-year-old pissant. He didn't really know anything, but somehow he got a lot of things right. He sounds like he was born an angry adult, so maybe that gave him a leg up on the rest of his generation. Now, does anger really make things better? Was Weller just expressing pent-up teenage angst in a way that maybe felt useful but was mostly self-righteous? Was the jam just a slightly more esoteric version of Metallica? Maybe, but what the hell? Weller was excruciatingly pure and honest. He was incorruptible. He was musically gifted, and his poison barbs almost always hit their mark. And he chose the perfect musical vehicle to express it all with, helped along by two absurdly capable bandmates who understood his vision and how to enhance it with their own contributions. And for all of Weller's complaints and cynical gaze at the powerful, for as old and jaded as he sounded at such a young age, his music is never hopeless and it's never nihilistic. Even when it's not stated in the lyrics, I hear in all of Paul Weller's songs a hope for a better world and a belief that such a world can happen. It's never that everything sucks and there's no point. Rather, everything could be better if a few people shaped the hell up and learned to care about the rest of society. Weller identified his targets and aimed judiciously. Even when his target was an entire lazy, materialistic class of society, he seemed to believe that they weren't beyond saving, that he could wake them up. And it's never bitterness for bitterness's sake, like, I don't know, Elvis Costello. Weller has genuine sympathy for those that he views as society's victims. He sketches them with love, and he only drags us into the muck of their lives so that we might be shocked into making those lives better. Weller believed that change was possible, and he really was trying to affect it to the extent that that could be accomplished through music. He's the bitterest and angriest humanist you'll ever come across. So one thing that's really fascinated me about my music tastes um, that I alluded to near the beginning is that I really was not into this kind of music at all in in my twenties. Um, but as I've I've gotten older, you know, contrary to the cliche of how these things are supposed to happen, I've come to really appreciate uh, music of this kind. I feel like Weller Weller is an old soul. Uh, he he thinks things he 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 articulates things in a way well beyond his years and the truth is like the points that he's getting across are not things that suddenly stop being true 
uh, when you start to get gray hair. If anything, like they become more pertinent, they become more relevant uh, as you get older. And he does a really, really effective job of expressing, um, you know, truths that we may not always want to face. And he frames it in music that is often very interesting. Again, I don't love every song on this album, and you know, he, it 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 took a while for me to be able to figure out what he was saying uh, beyond a couple of choruses here and there, and so his 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 diction <laughs> might have needed some improvement. But at the same time, I know that he's doing this as a stylistic choice, and it's an effective stylistic choice. It, I can I can defend it for a lot of reasons. Um, I went into this album uh, not skeptical, but like still having some trouble uh, trying to figure out why this particular album would be the one. And at this point, I think I get it. It's it's really a remarkable listen, and yeah, I, I would join everyone here in in recommending it highly. Yeah, it's funny how this album has kind of grown on me in my 30s in ways that other punk bands from that era's albums might not have. And it kind of makes me want to go back and hear more stuff from the jam that didn't connect with me in the past. Because again, I don't know if that would be like one of my favorite bands from that era. But again, this album and sound effects are pretty consistent and those are the two that have really kind of stuck with me. Um, and I've not heard any style counsel. I guess I should probably make a point to do that. No, you shouldn't. No. Okay. All right. <laughs> not even Paul Weller wants you to listen to the style counsel. Oh, <laughs> scratch that off the list. Yeah. I read an interview uh, from 2004 where he's asked about the style council and they asked him, were you becoming some kind of art snob? And he said, I was becoming a complete fucking wanker. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Grumpy. <laughs> as for myself i don't have much else to add but ben uh, we've been talking on the internet for more than half my life and i'm glad that 20 years <laughs> later we're still geeking out about the jam uh, i just wish yes. i'd recommended the b52s to you at the time so that it would have <laughs> evolved into the correct opinion <laughs> instead of the stupid one that you have right now <laughs> so uh on that note uh what other jam material would you recommend to newcomers so you can't go wrong with the jam's mid-career streak of Almod Cons, Setting Suns, and Sound Effects. I'm less familiar with their original punkier albums and with The Gift, their new wave-influenced swan song. I also don't know Weller's later career as co-founder of the Style Council, although I have it on good authority that it's terrible, <laughs> um, and as a solo artist. And hopefully my esteemed co-hosts can help out a bit with that. I'm going to take the easy way out and talk about my favorite jam song, uh, which is called That's Entertainment from their 1980 album Sound Effects. It's an uncharacteristic jam song, at least musically. There's a bed of acoustic guitars, and Foxton and Buckler only make themselves known in the background. The lyrics describe in jarring detail the unbearable sounds of city life. A screaming siren, pneumatic drilling, a lady wailing, a dog howling, an amateur band rehearsing in a nearby yard. And Weller builds up to a chorus of, that's entertainment, that's entertainment. That's sarcasm, so biting that it leaves a mark that dribbles blood. 
The characters in the song take solace wherever they can, feeding ducks in a pond, losing themselves in dreams of being somewhere better. That's entertainment is horrifying and beautiful. It's cynical about modern life, but sympathetic towards those who have to endure it. It's peak Paul Weller. The only thing I would uh, say is um, I mentioned earlier the deluxe reissue of Setting the Suns with the the concert that I mentioned. Uh, that's really worth getting, even if you have uh, just the uh, just the album on its own. the The concert that they include uh, from the Rainbow in 1979. I I've listened to it a bunch, probably even more than any. Uh, of either of my uh, jam studio albums until we started prepping for this. And I like it a lot. It's, it capture, captures the band in uh, what seems to be a pretty good form. Um, and as for myself, I think, um, well, you mentioned the gift, uh, their final album. It's not very good, but I think it's worth hearing once just to hear Weller try to force his rhythm section to perform music. They're just completely unsuited for. And, <laughs> and that's even with them doing a good job on heat wave, but it's just, yeah, the kind of soul they do on that album, they just sound really like stiff and out of their element. I, I know I'm making the album sound so worth hearing. I remember the cover of fever being pretty, uh, clumsy. And there's some good songs on it. There's ghosts that I mentioned earlier that Ted Leo covered, which is actually one of my favorite songs of all time. But otherwise, the best songs like Town Called Malice, you'll, which is probably their most famous song in America, you can find them on a hits compilation. Um, and actually, if you're trying to get into the jam, I do recommend picking up a good hits compilation because they have a lot of non-album singles that are like very just that are just equal to their best songs ever. Like there's um, I'm thinking of Strange Town, uh, When You're Young, which which I mentioned earlier. There's um, Absolute Beginners. Um, and my favorite of all, Going Underground, which is just a wonderful, wonderful new wave song from around the time Setting Suns came out. And we're going to clip it right here. I'm so happy and you're so kind. You want more money, of course I don't mind. But you feel a text was for Tommy Wines. And the public gets what the public wants. But I want nothing to say. It's just that I'm going underground. Going underground. What if the brass bands play up? And you can actually buy pretty much their whole compilation on a fairly affordable box set, like I did. Is that the uh, Direction Reaction Creation? Yeah, I don't know if it's complete, but it's got all the studio albums and a lot of singles and B-sides on it. Yeah, the Jams catalog is a lot cheaper to buy right now than when I bought it when I was 16. (laughs) I think I paid $25 for that box set. See, I'm actually willing to wait like 20 years until I can get a good price on an album before I listen to it. (laughs) But, but Rich, I'm glad you checked it out way back when and recommended it. Well, I had to do what pop-up video told me. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of Setting Suns. So, next time, we didn't mention the Moody Blues at all this episode. <gasps> well, good thing the whole next episode is going to be about them. Oh, yeah. Uh, Amanda's going to be covering their 1969 album, To Our Children's Children's Children. That's right. This is the first band we're returning to. And of course, it's the Moody Blues. However, I'm not on this one because I don't know that album very well. But we have uh, who's on that one? It's John, Phil, Mike and Will. You're going to hear Will's opinion on the Moody Blues. And um, this is the podcast that Amanda and I were always meant to do. Oh, yeah. And uh, we've actually already <laughs> recorded that episode and, and we recorded it in person uh, live from Michigan. 
Batman just last week. But let's roll some credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream Setting Suns and other albums by The Jam at your local Sam Goody or just the usual places such as Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and Amazon. And we made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at DiscordPod for news and updates. Follow me at Zonetrope. Follow Dan at Dan S. Watkins. Follow John at Tarkus1980. And follow Ben at BenjaminM1019. Also, check out Ben's book, All the Days of His Life, listening to David Bowie, song by song, on Amazon. He didn't write a book about the jam, I'm sorry. <laughs> ben, get on that. I will. Uh, and you can also listen to his awesome podcast, Detours, wherever fine podcasts are streamed. Visit John's nearly two-decade-old music review archive. And, wow, it's about to turn 20, huh, John? Yep. At johnmcfarrenmusicreviews.org. And, as usual, fair warning, he rates albums in hexadecimal. The only correct rating system. That's true. <laughs> Editing is by me, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for his production skills. See you next album, and be ever wonderful. You guys just got jammed. <laughs> <laughs>